third time I've seen that video. Oh, I haven't seen it prior to this week's public meeting. Uh, and in fact, I hadn't seen it before they showed it at uh, five past one on Tuesday. Uh, and uh, I really didn't know what to say when I stood up to start speaking on Tuesday, for those of you that were there. Uh, I don't think we need to go far to know that the world is not right. Uh, maybe because of our own personal experience, uh, maybe because of the experience of others round about us, or maybe because of the experience of others whom we have no direct contact with, but we are somehow in the global village with, thanks to the media and uh, the rise of uh, immediate and mass communication. I don't think we need to go far. In fact, I suspect that even this afternoon, it would not be difficult for you to find someone who is not content and not satisfied with life. Uh, maybe because it's a family member, maybe because it's someone who you know is having difficulty, maybe because it's someone who you observe on your way home. Uh, whatever the case, the world is not as it should be. And I think we know that from our own human experience. I am yet to meet in my very short lifespan anyone who is completely content with life, anyone who is completely happy with their lot in life, or anyone who has genuinely and honestly can say to me, I've had no difficulty in my life. I've interacted with many from varying social stratas of our society, and even those who appear to have it all together. Now, one man I know has an office on the highest level of the Chifley Tower. And life is still difficult, and he wishes it could be different. To the lady I know who lives in almost abject poverty, uh, who at times is actually demonstrating great contentment, but still wishes that life would not be as it was. I don't think we need to look far to know that the world is not as it should be. And I want to suggest that now as we turn to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the Bible starts to give us some reason why the world is not as it should be. And so this week and next week, when we look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3, I want to try and show you the Bible's explanation as to why the world is in a mess. I suggested last week, for those of you that were here, by way of summary, or for those of you that weren't here, that the book of Genesis is a book about beginnings. It's a book about origins. Chapter 1 is primarily concerning the origins of the world. Chapters 2 to 11 are concerning the origins of what we might call the nations that then start to populate the world. And in chapters 12 to 50, the writer Moses goes to great lengths to start to detail the origins of the nation of Israel. I also suggested that Genesis chapter 1 could possibly be primarily a functional account of creation rather than solely a material account because I think the text heads you in that direction. As we then turn to look at chapters 2 and 3 this week, we should bear that in mind. That in the context, the writer, I think, is suggesting a functional creation in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 involves creating, but I want to suggest in an ancient way of thinking, not in a modernist Western way of thinking. It involves creating by way of naming, separating, the assigning of function, the giving of roles. There are some big themes that the book of Genesis picks up primarily the way in which God deals with humanity and also the idea that God not only creates but also decreates the world because it's not as it should be and then recreates. One of the themes that we look at more closely this week is actually the spread of sin throughout the world which is not apparent in Genesis chapter 1. And because I want to suggest that Genesis is a book about the history of the nation of Israel 
we should expect this to start coming out as we explore further into the text of the the book. So we shouldn't be surprised if in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 we start to get some hint of how God is going to deal with the nation of Israel. I suggested that there's a fairly broad structure uh, to the book of Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters. And the, the chapters that we're dealing with today really deal with what I want to call humanity's disobedience. Humanity's disobedience. We need to remember that the account of Genesis chapter 2, I don't think, is a secondary creation account. I don't think that God has made the world and then something happens and so he has to make the world again. Uh, What I want to suggest to you is that within the creation account, this is one perspective of some components of the creation account that has taken place in Genesis chapter 1. We notice that at the end of Genesis chapter 1, on the seventh day, God rests from all the labours that he's been doing. Prior to that, at the end of the sixth day, God has looked upon the creation and saw that it is very good. So what then do we make of the account in Genesis, particularly chapter 2? Well, I want to suggest that as we start to move from a very large scale towards moving towards a particular history of the nation of Israel, that Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of this little phrase that starts to be repeated throughout the book of Genesis, should at least give us a hint that actually the writer is starting to zero in on the formative moment of the creation of the nation of Israel. And it starts primarily with the two characters that are in front of us in the text, Adam and Eve. But at the same time, it's also worth pointing out that within the account of Genesis chapter 2, there are a couple of times when material creation is actually described. And I don't have a difficulty with this. I don't think the text contradicts itself from last week. But notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and at this point, if you've got a Bible... It would be really good to get a Bible out because you need to be looking at the text to make sure that it's actually saying what I tell you it's saying rather than just taking my opinion of the text. And you'll notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and chapter 2, verse 19, there's a little phrase that's repeated on two occasions where it talks about the Lord God forming something. And in the case of 2.7, it's the Lord forms the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in 2.19, so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. Uh, The language that's used here is different to the language of creation in chapter 1, which is why I want to suggest that chapter 1 is about a functional creation and these occurrences in chapter 2 are about material creation. Notice that we're told the stuff from which the things are made. And what is it? Dust. The animals, the birds, and man are formed from the dust of the ground. Uh, The word is used elsewhere, particularly in the Old Testament, of a, for example, a potter getting a lump of clay and forming it into something. Taking some material and doing something with it to give it substance. Not necessarily to assign it a task or a role, but to actually give it shape. Okay, that's what's going on here. So I think we do start to get some hints in chapter 2 using the language of forming of a material creation. But Genesis 2 is particularly on for the account of Adam and Eve. Notice that not much time, if any, is given to a lot of the things that were created in Genesis chapter 1. Some things we see again, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the earth, man and woman, but there's nothing there, is there, about some of the other uh, ideas that were uh, raised in Genesis chapter 1. So chapter 2 is starting to narrow in on a particular focus. 
Some would suggest that um, because it's uh, supposedly the start of the history of the nation of Israel, that the idea of covenant actually starts coming out. Which we shouldn't be surprised at because one of the things that God is on for in terms of dealing with Israel is creating a covenant, agreement, a contract with them. Well, I think there's a little bit of a hint in this in chapter 2. I'm not, not going to go to the stake on it, but it's worth considering that actually God is making an agreement between himself and between his creation, in this case, between the man and the woman. The agreement's broken in Genesis chapter 3 with significant consequences. The word covenant is not used as it is used of, say, in Genesis chapter 9, where an explicit covenant is made with Noah and his descendants. But there is a lot of similarity between the language that is used in Genesis 2 and 3 and the language that is used in 9, and then subsequently in chapters 12, 15, 17, the covenant with Abraham, and then so on into the history of Israel with the covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel. But Genesis 2 can actually be, I think, strongly building on our understanding of God. We are told things in Genesis 2 about God that we're not told in Genesis chapter 1. We know that he's the creator, we know that from chapter 1. But I think in chapter 2 and 3 we're told that God is on for relationships. Why is it that God creates? Presumably not so he can just step back and admire what he's created... Because perhaps if you stop reading at the end of chapter 1 or the end of chapter 2, verse 3, you may get that impression. Now, I want to suggest that Genesis 2 gives a heightened perspective on God's intentionality for creating. And I want to suggest that this intentionality is because God is directed towards relationship. God wants to be in relationship with his creation. And the means of establishing that relationship and investing in the relationship is primarily through Adam and Eve. And we see in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 that God is not only interested in establishing relationship, but maintaining and developing the relationship. God is not like, not like the parent who, if their child continues to rebel, just continues to ignore the rebellion. God is the creator such that when the creation disobey him, He deals with the rebellion and deals with it in an appropriate manner. And next week when we explore in a little more detail the curses in chapter 3, we'll see the way in which God's dealing of it is appropriate. But Genesis 2 does develop our understanding of God and the way in which he invests in relationship with Adam and Eve. One of the other things that we see as we... uh, look at chapter 2, is that it's a highly structured uh, literary account. But before we come to that, there's a little aside that I pushed off last week, where last week when we dealt with chapter 1, verses 27 and 20, uh, well, 21 primarily, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. My suggestion was that we just leave this because it's a Christological idea, and so you should do that at Ancon. Now, if you haven't yet registered for Encon, can I encourage you to do that after public meetings? Someone wondered how many times I could encourage you to register for Encon, so I'm just keeping a little tally. And uh, we'll see if this week I can, if today I can top both Tuesday and Wednesdays. I don't think I will, but anyway, we'll see. Uh, The little aside that we need to do is we just need to spend a minute looking at what the image language means. Now, I didn't think we'd need to do this last week, partly because I was running out of time. And secondly, I thought I'll deal with it this week. However, in my mistake, actually, to understand Genesis 2, you really do need to know something about what it means to be created in the image of God. 
So we can't leave it for ANCON, and if you haven't registered, you really should. What we do need to do, though, is we just need to deal with it now. It's interesting to note that in Genesis chapter two, chapter 1, where God creates in his image, the language of creating actually changes slightly. Up until then, the little phrase was used, let there be, whatever it is. But when it comes to the creation of humanity, it's let us. Now, whether or not this is a Trinitarian illusion, uh, that's definitely something we can deal with at NCON, or whether or not it's the way in which we sort of like to use the royal we, you know, let us go to, where it's really just you and you pretend you've got lots of friends with you. <laughs> well, a royal plural is not really used in Hebrew, so I think we can sort of dismiss that one. Uh, I think what it's just saying is it's saying God is on for relationship. The us compared to let there be is a highly relational term. Uh, I think there is an argument to be said that it's possibly some allusion to Trinity, but we're not going to go there now. But the idea of being created in the image of God means that the, the thing, in which case humanity that is created in the image of God, shares something of the creator. And in that sense, the created being, in this case it's us, humanity, we share meaning and purpose. Uh, we share some of which, some of the things, some of the attributes that God has. But at this point, I think the most important thing to recognise is that in the same way that God is on for relationships, so too does he expect us, as created in his image, to be on for relationships. I think one of the things that it means to be created in the image of God is that God is expecting a relationship with those who are created in his image. And the nature of the relationship will be more intimate and more personal than things which are created which are not in his image. Of course, God still relates to all of his creation. But he relates to humanity differently to the way in which he creates to the way in which he relates to the birds and the animals of the field. Notice here that when God creates in his image, he defines humanity's role. And one of the things that humanity is to do by way of function is to rule the creation, to have dominion over it. In the same way that God, as ruler over all things and as creator, has the right to rule. Notice that that comes about, as we saw last week, in the way in which things are named. He is the one who names them. That actual responsibility is also given to humanity. And we see this coming out in Genesis chapter 2 because Adam is given the responsibility to name the animals that were brought to him. Humanity is meant to rule the creation. But to do it in the way in which God would have us do it because we're made in his image. This idea comes up a little bit later on in Genesis. You see it coming up in Genesis 5 and Genesis 9. And as you read through the rest of the account and move into Israel's history, the way in which this idea gets overturned very unhelpfully is when Israel goes and worships idols. See, an idol in and of itself is just a false image. And I think what's going on is when people turn to idolatry... What they're essentially doing is they're replacing a relationship with God with a relationship with an inanimate object. They're turning to a false image, an idol, something that is not living, something that cannot relate to them, something that cannot help them in any way. Contrary to the way in which we were created in the image of God. Well, turning now to a possible structure for Genesis 2 and 3... Hey, old technology works just as well as PowerPoint presentations, doesn't it? 
Uh, I think there's a highly structured... The account in Genesis 2 and 3 is actually fairly highly structured. Can you see the top one there? Is that better? Uh, and within the narrative... Uh, the, the, the aim of the writer is to draw your attention to certain components of it. <clears throat> Primarily, this one here. And if you've read through the text, and if you're aware of the text, or if you're only now glancing down to the text to find out which one that is, uh, that's the bit where Adam and Eve really stuff it up. In some senses, that's the high point in the text. And we do well to notice the movement in the text. So, interestingly, in the first section there, and in the seventh section, there is absence from the garden. In the first section, God has not yet created the garden. And so you see Genesis 2, 4 to 17 is all about the creating of the garden. At the end, man and uh, Adam and Eve are driven away from the garden. This little uh, uh, section in the middle is actually right in the centre of the garden where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil takes place and the, the event and the temptation takes place. See, in the first section, God forms man and places him in the garden. In the second section, God forms the animals and the woman. And in some senses, you may say, well, these are the people, these are the parts of the creation who were there to help the man. Notice that the animals are brought to the man for a suitability test to see if there are any suitable helpers, presumably to help work the garden. But none are found, and so Eve is created. In the third section in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5, there's a dialogue between the snake and the woman. And then in Genesis 3, 9 to 13, after the act of disobedience, there's another dialogue, this time between God and the man. Do you see how these sections start mirroring each other? Down here in Genesis 3, 14 to 21, God punishes and punishes the aspects of creation. The aim of the author is to draw attention particularly to this section of the narrative as the high point, or in our case, the low point of the text. Well, I'm going to work through some of these sections and uh, try and help us understand what's going on in each one of them. In the first section, we uh, get an understanding a bit about the Garden of Eden. And so we're dealing particularly here with verses 4 through 17. Uh, Eden, uh, the word just means a place of delight or a place of great happiness. Uh, in some senses, it does sound like paradise. Um, it's a land which is given a description of great beauty, uh, it's almost like uh, God has established a fine garden for man at this stage, just the male, to inhabit. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to whether the garden, garden of Eden was actually a physical location. Did it actually exist as a garden or as a metaphor for something else? Uh, it's interesting that the writer, Moses, goes to some lengths to try and establish its location. Uh, if it was purely, I think, just a metaphor or um, a, a myth, or then why would there'd be that much detail. The difficulty is when you try and actually work out where it is, and I don't know if you've ever done this, just get some maps and have a look, uh, you're none the, clear, none the wiser, it's no clearer given the description. Uh, the commentators have been arguing about it for years. Uh, I think your best bet, if you really want to go looking for it, you know, in the mid-semester break or something like that, <laughs> uh, your best bet will be northern Iraq, so that's probably a bit out of the question at the moment, given all the strife that's going on over there, uh, or possibly somewhere up on the Turkish plateau. If you find it, send me a postcard. Because <laughs> uh, if it's still there, I'm, I'm there. I'm living there. That sounds great. It is a place of unrivaled beauty. A place of, you would say, perfection. 
Yet at the same time, we need to see from a, a close reading of the text that it's actually not quite the utopian paradise that we might think. This is not the place where Adam is relaxing the whole time by the pool and the rest of the creation is actually waiting on him hand and foot. Notice he's actually out there working. But the work that he does actually benefits the garden. Uh, This little phrase where Adam is to till the soil, and it comes up in Genesis 2 and again as part of the curse, the word is also used of serving something. Adam in his activity of tilling the soil is actually serving the garden in which he's been placed. So it's not just that Adam sits back and enjoys the great beauty and all of the good things about it. He's actually out there doing something. And next week we'll see why our work in the world is so difficult. In doing so, though, Adam actually follows the will of his creator, which is to work the garden. We see also about Eden that there's two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think from a reading of the text that the tree of life was a tree which they were meant to eat from. Notice the prohibition. Everything in the garden you can eat from except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Where do we see that? We see that down in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Well, presumably they're looking at the tree of life going, so that one's okay. Absolutely. Which I think dismisses the idea that once eaten it gave eternal life. Some will read where God actually at the end of Genesis chapter 3 says, sort of tries to prohibit man from eating of that tree of life again. Uh, I don't think it's the tree of eternal life that once eaten you live forever. I think it's the thing which, like most of the other trees, it represents the sustaining, ongoing, life-giving nature of the garden. Because things are as God has intended. In terms of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this one's a little bit more complicated. Uh, This is the one that can create some difficulty. Uh, As a complete aside, notice that both trees are placed right in the centre of the garden. Are they growing on top of each other or just vaguely next to each other? Or So at some point you've got to work out if they're actual trees or illustrating something. I think this idea of knowing good and evil is uh, something that you do well to consider. And I don't think this is something that you will resolve easily. Let me suggest one way forward. What I think it's talking about is not whether or not man has an awareness of good and evil but whether or not man can discern between good and evil. Um, And why I say that is because I think as you consider the text and look at the way in which this little word knowing is used elsewhere, it's in some senses used of the age of responsibility. It's used of children who do not know until they reach a certain age. (coughs) Now, there are things that my children know just because their powers of observation are equal to mine. They can tell me that's a tree. They can tell me that's a... But there are things that they can't yet discern because they've not reached a certain maturity. And I think that's what's going on here in the language of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think the reason why God places restrictions around access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because man in his human created state is unable to adequately and suitably discern between good and evil. That's God's responsibility, not man's responsibility. And so man, in taking of that tree, takes on a role that is not his. And that's why 
all the things start coming unstuck in the la- in the next part of chapter two, in, in chapter three. Okay, we move on. Uh, what do we know of the man and the woman? <coughs> well, in chapter two, verse eighteen, the alarm bell should start ringing. Chapter two, verse eighteen. You're thinking, hang on, not till chapter three. <coughs> well, notice the text, chapter two, verse eighteen. The Lord said, "It is not good that a man should be alone." This is one of the. This is an emphatic negative that you should, if you're reading the text, go, "Whoa, hang on." I thought everything was very good. Why is this not good? And I want to say again that I think we try and place moral value to this word good. We place a moral label to it. Whereas I think it's a functional term. A man is not functioning as as well as he could be. Is he somehow created imperfectly? No, I don't think so. I just think there's something missing in the creation. Such that when that thing appears... I don't mean to speak derogatorily about females at this point, but when the female appears, both male and female now function well. And that's why in Genesis chapter 1, when I think it's a functional account, once male and female are created in the image of God, God sees it is very good. And so what's going on here? Well, I think man is lonely. The male is lonely. See, God creates with the intent of relationship. And the male has been created and has been formed from the dust, but has no relational companion. So the rest of creation are brought to Adam, and Adam looks at them all and names them all, and um, that probably would have taken a while. Uh, how he came up with all the names, I don't know. Anyway, um, he gets to the end, and no suitable helper is found. Now, at this point... Uh, Some people will try and argue that this little phrase, because woman is the helper, she's somehow inferior. And this little argument has been run for quite a while over many years. Whereas I think the way in which the account of Genesis 2 talks about the bringing of the woman into existence is that she's made of the same stuff as Adam. Notice she's not brought into existence from the dust, as if that might give rise to saying, well, are there two different humanities? No, no, there's one humanity and Eve is brought from almost exactly the same stuff as Adam. One of Adam's ribs is taken out and the word that's used there is actually different from the create word, different from the form word, the moulding word. It's the word just means to build things. Um, you know, this is sort of your uh, Old Testament replicator version. The rib goes in, you push the buttons, uh, Eve sort of appears and now she steps and Adam just goes, Wow. <laughs> well don't forget hang on he's been alone and now there's the woman and notice his reaction okay the man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh could she be any more intimately connected to him she's exactly the same stuff as of him so what about this idea that women are inferior to men because they're helpers well If you track down the word and the way in which it's used in the rest of the Old Testament, and why I think this whole how it's used thing is important, because you need to keep dealing with the word in its context. When I say the word helper, our Western minds think of certain things. Whereas that's not the way that the word was used in its context, nor understood. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. And on 15 of these occurrences, God is the helper of man. Now, I want to suggest to you here that God is not inferior to man. (laughs) And so, therefore, in the context, you have a very difficult argument to try and say, on this ground, because the woman is a helper, she is therefore inferior to man. 
If anything, I think the account goes to great lengths to show that this is not the case, that the woman at the point of creation is not inferior. Both male and female in chapter 1 are created in the image of God. Not one more in the image of God and one less in the image of God. Adam and Eve, Eve is created from the flesh of Adam, the bone of Adam. There is an equality there. But at the same time, we must notice that in the text and from the account, there is an order in which things are brought into existence. Adam is created first, and then Eve. Now, this order is understood by New Testament writers, particularly in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. And what I think it says is that Adam is given responsibilities that the woman does not have to take up. Adam is given responsibilities that he is to discharge that are not the woman's responsibilities. And in chapter 3, one of the reasons why the whole thing goes astray is because Adam does not live up to his responsibilities. But the woman's function is to rule with Adam. Both male and female are to have dominion over the creation. Well, whether or not you want to suggest, I mean, I think verse 23 gives a great level of intimacy, but it's in many respects heightened in verse 24 and 25 where the pattern for marriage is told to us, where in verse 25, both the man and his... Well, in verse 24 and 25, they become one flesh, they they share sexual intimacy. And can there be any more an intimate moment than that? See, God is on for relationship and generating intimacy in relationship, and this is very clearly brought into existence, told for us, and lived out. Uh, In terms of this idea of whether or not chapter 3 talks about the fall, well, I sort of want to suggest uh, that it's a little bit of a dangerous way of thinking, particularly if you view it from a Greek idea or a Gnostic idea. See, the Greeks and the Gnostics thought that humanity was created in a very perfect state, uh, that it was almost a heavenly state, and uh, because of all sorts of, uh, depending on which account you sort of go with, uh, at some point mankind falls and moves to a very earthly material state. And so then should be looking forward to a rise back to this great heavenly, less material, less earthy, less evil state. I don't really get that. I don't, I don't see that coming out in the account of the fall. See, what's different, about the, what's different between before Adam and Eve disobey and after they disobey? They're still material beings. They're created as material beings. God is still in relationship with them, isn't he? Yes. God still communicates with them. They still communicate to God. But what's changed? Well, the nature of the relationship has changed. I'm not sure their material being has changed. I think their functions are now proved to be more difficult. They're still required to do what they were created to do, but it's now much more problematic, as we're going to see last week. I think that what the text indicates, particularly here in this section of Genesis 3, verse 6 to 8 is that actually man and woman replace the word of God and the trustworthiness of God with the word of the creature. Uh, The serpent comes along in chapter 3, verses uh, 1, and tries to twist the word of God. And Adam and Eve fall for it. They uh, transgress and disobey the command that God had given them. And so this idea of the temptation and the sin, the taking of the fruit, if you like, is a direct challenge to God. It's a direct challenge to his rule, a direct challenge to the intimacy that's been created between God and humanity. 
It's denying the intimacy of that relationship. Notice in chapter 2, verse uh, 8, after they uh, had realised they were naked, notice that their intimacy is now compromised. They're ashamed because they see each other naked. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. As if they could hide from God in his own garden. You think he wouldn't know? You think he would? It's, a, it's an admission of guilt, isn't it? That they've actually uh, tried to, uh, well, they actually have, and now they're trying to hide from God because they don't want to deal with the consequences. And so you start to see the breakdown in the intimacy of the relationship. You see it because uh, they've tried to hide from God. Uh, you see it because now the creation is frustrated. You see it because they've now transgressed. And they're ashamed. And God deals with them appropriately. But it's worth pointing out that in this particular act of disobedience, where they reject the word of God for the word of one of the creatures, that while Eve is tempted first, Adam is the one at whose feet the blame is firstly placed. Because Adam turns over the order of creation. Notice in chapter 3, verse 9... The Lord God calls firstly to the man as the one who was created first and should have responsibility for he and his wife's actions. Where are you? And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, and at this point this is the biggest buck pass in all of history. (laughs) The man says, Yes, it was me. It's my fault. Oh, your versions don't have that? No. The man says, The woman whom you gave me. Oh, He doesn't try and do it once. He tries to do it twice. And I made this mistake yesterday, so I need to correct this. because anyway. Um, but the, notice who Adam places the blame, whose feet Adam places the blame at. Oh, look, God, it's not my fault. It's the woman. And then you can see him going, Oh, that's not going to sound good. Whom you placed here. So surely, God, it's your fault. Because if you had done a better job at making her to not tempt me, then wouldn't have been her fault, wouldn't have been my fault, wouldn't have... Adam just passes the buck. Notice what the woman does. Just, ladies, if you thought you were laughing loudly. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman replies, The male, it's his fault. (laughs) No, no, the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, some will say this is just stating the truth. This is not actually the woman trying to pass the buck because she's being honest at that point. Because that's actually what happened, isn't it? The serpent deceives her and she eats. Others will say, actually, no, no, in the same way that Adam tries to get out of his responsibility of passing it to his wife, the woman tries to get out of her responsibility to go, actually, it's the serpent, it's the rest of the creatures. Whatever the case, the pattern is clear. The order of creation has been reversed and turned upside down. And God now deals with the situation. Why I want to just pick up on this idea of the order of creation is because I want to suggest that the spread of sin, as we see in the rest of the account of Genesis and into the world today, is primarily Adam's fault. Adam's the one who should have taken responsibility. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, the Apostle Paul uses this argument by comparing Adam and Jesus. He says, Adam is representative of all of humanity in this particular act which is why Jesus needs to come as the representative of a new humanity, new humanity 
to restore the relationship that was broken in Adam's act. Now, on this basis, I want to suggest that Adam is not just a metaphor. I think he's actually a real living human being. Well, he's not living anymore. A real human being who lived. Otherwise, Paul's argument is suddenly significantly weakened if he's just this theory. Because Paul's comparing a metaphor or a theory to the physical person of Jesus. Having said that, though, I don't think that it necessarily implies that Adam has to be the biological ancestor of all of living humanity. See, I can have people who represent me and represent my cause, even though I'm not directly related to them. The Governor-General, for example, I'll use this example with someone after public meeting yesterday. The Governor-General will represent me. She will go and represent me in a certain way. I've never met her, I don't even know her name, and I'm not related to her. But she represents me because of, why? Because I'm an Australian citizen. In the same way, I think the Scriptures show us that Adam actually represents all of humanity because we're all humanity. And he is God's delegated representative. Why is this important? Well, it's important because in the same way that Adam is our representative, we sin just like Adam. And you see this pattern flowing through Genesis where the spread of sin increases from disobedience in Genesis 3.6, murder in Genesis 4.8, reckless killing in 4.23, corruption in 6.5, in in and total disobedience in the Tower of Babel. Well, today, the implication for us, we need to feel the weight that we are in Adam. We sin just like Adam. And until that problem of sin is fixed, we will continue to do so and the world will continue to be in a mess. Which is why we give great thanks that Jesus comes as a representative of a new humanity to deal with the breakdown of relationship that we as humanity have between us and God. I'm going to pray for us and then you can register for Anton later. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus that he is representative of a new humanity. We thank you that he restores the relationship between us and yourself. We ask, please, Father, that you would help us to live rightly as we were made in your image and to look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we will be restored perfectly to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.